You are the shepherd and you are the guardian. But you are also the word made flesh. We pray that through these words, these poor words, your living word might be heard and might bring us life. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week, we started into the first epistle of Peter. It's a letter, one that comes to several communities in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. If you've been watching the news, lots of stuff going on in Turkey lately. Same place. For most part, for the most part, it's a letter of encouragement. Encouragement to people who are suffering. This week, we continue a little on in the letter, which continues on the subject of the suffering that this community is enduring. The part before our passage isn't included in our reading, but our passage is directed at slaves who are part of the community of faith and the suffering they experience on the, in the hands, at the hands of their masters. For it is to your credit, our passage begins, for it is to your credit if, being aware of God, you endure pain while suffering unjustly. They are to be commended, argues our author, if they put up with suffering and pain inflicted by their masters, if that suffering and pain is undeserved. After all, he said, if you're beaten for doing what's wrong, where's the credit in that? But if you endure when you do right and suffer for it, you have God's approval. Basically, he says, there's no virtue in accepting punishment you deserve. But if you're treated badly for good behavior and you keep up good behavior anyway, this is the kind of thing that counts with God. So, according to Peter, if you're a slave and you do something wrong and are punished by your master, then it's all on you. No sympathy here. But if you do your job, you follow it to the letter, and then you're punished, whether your master is incompetent or cruel or simply misunderstands you, and you not only put up with it but keep at it as employee slave of the month, then he says, this is the kind of thing God approves of. You're on the right track. This might sound a little odd to you at first. Just about every commentary I read on this passage pointed out a little bit of a moral problem. Passages like this, after all, were once used by slave masters to ensure their slaves accepted their lot in life, remained nice, obedient slaves, and didn't rise up against them. And another passage in Peter that's part of this letter counsels women to submit their hut to their husbands even if their husbands are Abusive, and that passage was used and is still used to convince women to not only stay with abusive husbands, but to put up with the abuse. And these commentaries usually point out that really, in the end, it sounds like a strategy for oppressors to keep on oppressing and abusers to keep on abusing. And a recipe for the oppressed to stay on being oppressed and the abused to keep on being abused, all in obedience to the will of God, maybe with rewards to come later on. Now, 
Because this text has been used this way, I'm not going to make excuses for the text. The text comes with a lot of baggage, a lot of brokenness. But regardless of the problems, though, there's a deeper point worth listening to. There's a crucial insight in here that needs to be heard beyond those particular points. After Peter tells his listeners to endure suffering, he gives them the reasoning behind it. For to this have you have been called, he says. For this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you should follow in his steps. Here Peter points to Jesus' example. Jesus in our Christian tradition is referred to as the one without sin. He committed no sin, says Peter, quoting Isaiah 53 from the Old Testament. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. Jesus lived a full human life, a human life as it was always intended to be, what a human being looks like fully in perfect relationship with God. He never gave in to evil. He didn't resist the people who arrested him. Jesus was then abandoned by his friends in his hour of need. He was tortured and died on the cross, and Jesus did not even curse those who tortured and murdered him. Father, he said, forgive them, for they have no idea what they're doing. Basically, Peter says, because Jesus is the perfect model of a human life, then you should do the same. You should follow in his footsteps. Jesus was righteous. Jesus was blameless. Jesus did the right thing. He suffered unjustly. So, Peter says, to heed his example, do what Jesus did. And if you know those little, uh, little bracelets that say WWJD, this is one of those texts. WWJD. Do what Jesus did. But it's never actually that simple, is it? I don't know how many of you have tried to do what Jesus did in your everyday lives. But it's not just Jesus' example that the Bible is interested in. It's also primarily about what God is up to in the world, what God is doing for us and for humanity and beyond. And this particular text focuses the camera on the cross. When he was abused, says Peter, he didn't return it. When he suffered, he said, he didn't lash out against his enemies. No, says Peter. Instead of lashing out, Peter tells us, Jesus trusted his life fully to God. And in doing so, Peter says, quote, Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that free from sins, we might live for righteousness. That famous line, by his wounds, Peter says, you have been healed, or by his stripes, you have been healed, if you know the old King James Version. Somehow, Peter says, somehow Jesus himself suffered the sins of the world so the world could be free from them. Now, I think that there's a lot of information going on. People often say, Jesus died for your sins, and often that, it's often used as a bit of a guilt trip to say, look at the bad things that you've done, feel badly because Jesus received those for you. But I think it's a deeper idea than this. 
the idea that somehow, through being wounded, the world's healing came and comes. This is what we traditionally call the doctrine of atonement in the church. For all you theology geeks out there. That how the world that is broken and shattered can be made one again, at peace with itself again, and at peace with God. At one meant atonement. You don't even know, need to be a Christian to know that there's something wrong with the world, just to look around at the state of it and the problems in our own lives. When Peter says that Jesus, quote, suffered for us and that he bore his sins in his body, he's saying that on the cross, God in Christ experiences every kind of thing that we do as human beings to wound and injure each other. Every kind of evil, twisted, violent thing we could do. And that, rather than returning evil for evil, rather than punishing us in the same way he was punished, God actually receives and suffers it. Takes it head on, absorbs it into himself, purifies it, and transforms it into an event of pure mercy and grace. Substitutionary atonement. This is a very bad name in uh, United Church circles right now. But anyway, I digress. Purifying it, transforming it into an event of pure mercy, so that rather than being stuck in our cycles of sin, self-deception, brokenness, and violence, we are, Peter says, free from sin so we might live for righteousness. God can take what is polluting our souls into herself, suffer it, overwhelm it, and overcome it with pure love, mercy, and grace. It's sort of like a Trojan horse, if you will. Peter argues that Jesus experienced immense unjust suffering, not for its own sake, suffering itself isn't good, but that his suffering was for the sake of the world, to bring freedom to all, even his enemies. And if God could do that with Jesus' suffering, the same way God can use their suffering to bring healing, mercy, and grace to the world in the same way. God used Christ's healing to bring about healing for all. And if God can do that, was that timed? It felt like that was a magic moment. It was like, the more you know. We had that all planned out like that. God used Christ's healing to bring out healing for all, and if God can do that, then God can use our suffering to bring about good too, even for our enemies. In the end, that's what this text is about. It's less about slaves and slave masters, and it's more about how God can use suffering, even suffering, to bring about good. Not all suffering is good. I'm going to say that flat out. Suffering in of itself is not good. Now, I doubt that any of us here are experiencing anything like the suffering of slaves, whether, uh, whether ancient or contemporary slaves, but I do know some of your suffering well. 
For many others, I know your suffering is silent and it's hidden, but I know that it's there. I'm not going to encourage any of you to simply put up with suffering because it's good for your character, no matter how many times I tell my children that. Or simply it's because what Jesus did. But what I'm going to say, though, is that your suffering will not be made right or relieved by returning what you've been handed out. Returning anger for anger, returning sin for sin, returning violence for violence will only pull you deeper in. It will eventually eat you up inside, it will poison you and turn you into what you hate. But God's love, God's life, God's power is even greater than your suffering. And God can use your suffering for good. The great German theologian Jürgen Moltmann puts it, that's going to be my third child's name, by the way. Jürgen. Jürgina, if it's a girl. Of course. Moltmann or Molt woman. Moltwoman. Moltmann puts it like this. Suffering proves to be stronger than hate. Its might is powerful in weakness and gains power over its enemies in grief because it gives life even to its enemies and opens the future to change. Suffering gives life even to its enemies and opens the future to change. So I'm not simply going to say give in to those who have hurt you or continue to oppress you. If you're a slave, do whatever you can to escape. If you're an abused spouse, don't think twice about getting away. Well, you can think twice, but don't think twice. But I'm saying that in enduring suffering rather than meeting it out, that God is so great that she can even use your suffering to bring about good instead. So friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, what this scripture is teaching us today that the only way for us and the world to experience freedom from those who oppress and injure us and to those that we oppress and injure, freedom from our sin and the freedom to experience full life righteousness, life as God intended it to be is by giving up the idea we can take control and make things right by inflicting the same old wrongs that have been inflicted on us. By trusting justice and judgment to God, the righteous judge, who will get what God wants in the end. And to discover that our own freedom, as well as the freedom of those who hurt us and others, can only be found in the nonviolent, self-emptying, radical love of God in Christ. It's in following Jesus to the cross and into resurrection. It's the only way. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you should follow in his steps. Because his path is the only one to new life 
for me, for you, for all. And for this, thanks be to God. Amen.